Good to see you today. Uh, let me just mention one thing before we start looking at our, uh, the next text in Revelation. Uh, we, you know, last Sunday we had a, a, um, a, an afternoon issues forum. We do this every once in a while. And we just address some issue in our culture. And this last Sunday it was on uh, alcohol. It was called Drinking in the Church. And I told the folks there, my, my title I had chosen was uh, How to Drink Like a Christian. And, uh, and they rejected my title. But anyway, that's what we talked about. And, uh, you know, knowing you as I do, I think this is an important issue for you guys. <clears throat> so if you weren't there, it's on the website. And uh, you might pull it off and put it on a CD or something and, and take it with you on the road. Uh, I think it's, it's an issue that's very, very important to us, not only for our own uh, lives, but especially those of you who have kids uh, or grandchildren. Uh, we talk about some principles on there about how to deal with our kids on this issue. And something that uh, the pastoral staff here at Second has noticed is that this is not an issue that's consistently dealt with very well within families. So uh, please take, take a listen. Uh, there also will be posting, uh, after I edit the notes, the notes will be posted on the website too, probably tomorrow. Uh, so you can get some of the statistics and so on that are mentioned. Uh, they'll all be printed for you eventually on the website. Uh, and we also have a bibliography there of some things that can be helpful on this issue. So take a look at that if you would. I commend it to you. Guys, we're in Revelation chapter 2. We've been, we saw in Revelation 1 that uh, Revelation is a revelation. <laughs> that is, it's something that God unfolds for us. He tells us something that we cannot find out simply by looking at nature. Furthermore, He's revealing something to us that we've been told about in the rest of the Bible. But this last book of the Bible gives us this literary video that arrests us from our complacency and our apathy, gets us going again, helps us, to realize, helps us to realize what is really important in life, and we get this grand vision of Jesus Christ and of the time to come, and it arrests us in our complacency. And we've seen that the primary revelation is a revelation of Jesus Christ. And last time we saw probably the grandest revelation we'll ever read about in the Bible anywhere of the Lord Jesus Christ in chapter 1. This fierce figure, and yet one who doesn't kill us but gives life. Because when we see him in all of his grandeur, we, like John the Apostle, would fall down as though dead. He's so great and radiant. And yet he says, do not fear. And he takes John up and lifts him up just as he does us and gives us life. And actually we've seen that it is that vision that gives us life. We need a vision of Jesus Christ in order to live life the way it's meant to be. Well, today we turn to Revelation 2 and 3. We're just going to look at the first seven verses of chapter 2. But these next two chapters uh, are chapters in which uh, Jesus is speaking to the seven churches that were mentioned in chapter 1. And so we get this wonderful critique of the church. It's kind of like, you want to know what Jesus thinks of the church? Well, you'll get it in Revelation 2 and 3. And uh, there's an individualized letter uh, written to each one of them. Now, what I'd like for, to us to do before we read the text is just get an idea of the format that uh, Jesus uses and John records in the book of the Revelation for each of these messages. We'll see, first of all, that each one of them has a church name. There, there are about seven components in each of these seven letters given to the seven churches. And you can see that, first of all, each of them are named. You know, he'd say, Church at Memphis, and he would name us. And you see Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. 
So the first thing is the church name. Secondly, he gives one of the names of Christ that have already been mentioned in Revelation chapter 1. There's only one exception to that. But generally in these letters, he'll say to the church in Ephesus from Jesus Christ, and Christ will be described in some way that comes out of the uh, chapter, first chapter. And then there's a commendation. You'll notice that in all these letters, uh, Jesus will commend the church, with one exception. He'll commend the church for the things that He has noticed they have done or said or, or even felt. And then there's a critique in all but one cases, as I remember. Uh, and He will commend and then critique. And this, is, this, by the way, is a good pattern, parents. Uh, <laughs> start with commendation. You say, can't think of anything. Well, think again. Uh, <clears throat> you know, sometimes it's a needle in a haystack, but you better go looking for it because our kids need to be commended. It was interesting. One of you told me uh, that uh, you have a strong-willed child. This is a young child. And you've been trying to figure out how to uh, control this child. And one of the things you said you discovered was that when you just pour encouragement in, it's amazing, just by encouragement, how this kid starts to be much more pliable. Uh, it's, a, it's an amazing, amazingly powerful thing, the power of encouragement. Uh, bosses, you might remember that when you go to work today too. It's amazing, the power of encouragement for those who are working for you. Then instruction. He gives them a commendation, a critique, and then he instructs them, teaches them what to do in each of these letters. Then he gives them a warning. Say, warning to the church? Why would he warn them? Well, because the, the visible church consists of those who have been truly regenerate, that is, they've been born again by the Spirit, and then the church also consists of those who have not yet been born in the Spirit. For example, uh, in many of our churches, we baptize our children. The parents take the vows, we baptize our children, and our children become baptized members of the church. Uh, in some cases here that you may be presuming their election or regeneration in that baptism, we don't hear. When we baptize infants, we do not assume that they've been born again. It's merely the covenant sign that's applied to them. For example, uh, Abraham was circumcised after he believed, but his children were circumcised before they either believed or disbelieved. And if you remember, the two children were Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac was rejected. He believed. Ishmael did not believe. And he was circumcised, but he was still cut off. And the same would be true with Isaac's children. One Esau, one Jacob. One believed. Jacob believed. Esau didn't. So Esau was cut off. But they were, all, they were both circumcised, or in the New Testament case, they were baptized. So baptism or inclusion in the visible body of Christ does not necessarily mean someone's in the eternal body of Christ. And all the churches must be very aware of this. You must be aware of it. You may have a church membership somewhere, but what the Bible teaches clearly is there's still a, a division within the church. Uh, Peter says, judgment will begin in the household of God. So the first place to be judged will be the visible church itself. So Jesus is speaking to visible churches, real churches like the one you go to. And the one you go to, just like the one I go to, is mixed. We've all made our commitment to walk visibly together and worship visibly together, but we may, have, we may not have hearts that are regenerate yet. And that's the reason Jesus lovingly keeps warning His church, so that we'll hear the warnings and repent. So there's a warning in each one of these letters. And then there's an exhortation. He who has ears to hear, let him hear, and he will eat of the tree of life or drink of the water of life or something like that. So there's an exhortation 
and a promise. And you'll find this format in all the seven letters. But the seven letters are different. Within this structure, within this format, uh, each of them will have its own particularized message. So let's look at the very first one, uh, Ephesus. And if you remember, if, uh, if you're looking from the island of Patmos, where John was in exile, and you look back across the Aegean Sea over to the mainland, Turkey, or, or what they would call Asia in, in those days, and you would speak to these seven churches this way, going from the north down to the south. And Ephesus would have been visible from Patmos. John could see it. And he starts with Ephesus. And Ephesus, of course, is a classic and, and a capital important city. Let's look in at Ephesians 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Okay, I'd like for us to notice seven things about Ephesus. First of all, Ephesus is a city in need. It's just like our city. It's a city in tension. Because on the one hand, we kind of know what's right. We've been given the message. But on the other hand, we're involved in a lot of things in our city that are not so pleasing to the Lord. Well, let's notice, first of all, that Ephesus was a very prosperous city. It was a city that was right on the coast. Uh, if you go to Ephesus now, which, by the way, if you're ever in Turkey, Istanbul, be sure you drive on down just a, you know, a ways, several hours. Go down to Ephesus. It is worth your trip. And be sure you've got someone who can explain the ruins to you. It's one of the more fascinating uh, ruins uh, in uh, Europe. So, but it, and if you go to Ephesus now, you'll, you'll go there and you'll look uh, about two miles down the way and you'll see the coastline. That's because the coast has receded from Ephesus, but the coast used to come right all the way up, up to Ephesus. It was a coastal city. It was a very prosperous city. It was a wealthy city. It was a city that was free uh, within the Roman Empire, and not all cities were free. But it was, it was a city, if you were born into it, you'd be a free citizen of Rome. It was also what they call an assize, A-S-S-I-Z-E, assize city. That is a city where judgments would be held, like federal court. It'd be a ma major center for court cases. So you had all kinds of traffic in Ephesus. You had people who were coming in who were merchants. You had lawyers coming in. You had a lot of pro-councils there and a, a lot of government administrative work there. In fact, in Ephesus, in those ruins, you can go and you'll see many of the administrative buildings 
that, that have been restored or are still in place. It's an amazing, amazing place. But it was a prosperous city. It had all the benefits and the deficits of wealth and prosperity. We'll get into that a little later. It also was a pagan city. Uh, if you know about Ephesus, there were temples, several types of temples there to different gods. But Ephesus was known worldwide for one of the beautiful temples in the pagan world, and that was the Temple of Diana or Artemis. Uh, it was called both. So the Temple of Diana, Temple of Artemis was in Ephesus. It was a beautiful temple, and that controlled the city. In fact, if you remember when the Apostle Paul went to Ephesus and began leading people to Christ, it began to undermine the economy. Why? Because people were no longer worshiping at the temple and buying all the trinkets that go with the temple. And the silversmiths got really upset because they were making the tokens and, and trinkets for the temple and nobody was buying them anymore. And so that's when they almost lynched Paul because he was undermining the economy. So the whole economy, or, or a lot of it, was based on pagan worship. I mean, think about this. The, uh, going into this city... You can think about some of the most secular cities that you know in this world, and none of them would have been more secularized, or in this case, more paganized, than would be Ephesus. The entire economy was built on its paganism. And then it was an evangelized city. The gospel was there, and there were some believers there. You may remember that Aquila and Priscilla, first of all, went to Ephesus and did some evangelism, and they led a handful of people to Christ because... When Paul went there a little later, he found a handful of believers. And you remember that Paul stayed there for three years. If you look at Acts 19, he'll say he stayed there for three years. He went into the synagogue in Ephesus. There was a Jewish synagogue there. He began to preach, and then eventually he got thrown out of the synagogue, you remember? And he went over to the lecture hall of Tyrannus, which was a beautiful, uh, common place, uh, kind of a house of culture, lecture hall, uh, in this great city. And he went there and began to, to proclaim the gospel. People would come and get converted. And he built the church up. And a lot of great things happened during those uh, three years. And uh, then after he was there, you remember Timothy was there. If you look in First Timothy, and some of you who are doing the daily Bible readings, uh, you've just read through First Timothy, or you're getting, I guess you just, we just finished it yesterday. And in First Timothy 1... When, when Paul's addressing Timothy, he speaks of Ephesus, where Timothy is apparently laboring. So Aquila and Priscilla, the Apostle Paul for three years, Paul sends Timothy there. These folks had some very fine teachers. They were definitely evangelized. And then lastly, of course, John the Apostle, who's writing this letter, he was their bishop. These folks had you know, two of the most outstanding uh, Christian teachers who ever lived, the Apostle Paul and John. And then certainly Timothy was a great teacher as well. They had the greatest of them all in this city. They were evangelized. So what you have is a city intention and a church intention because the church has been given the gospel, been given the word of God, been given instructions how to live, but they're living in an ocean of iniquity, an ocean of false religion. And what, what we're going to see is happening here is that Jesus Christ is speaking to his church and reminding them who they are. And gentlemen, I would remind you who you are this morning. If you belong to the church, you have been called out. The church in Greek is ekklesia. And, of course, it's the, it's the word from which we get ecclesiastical. Ekklesia. I guess you could spell it E-K-K-L-E-S-I-A. Ekklesia. And 
Ekklesia, ek just means out of. Klesia comes from kaleo, which means to call out or to call. So we're called out. Called out of what? Called out of darkness. Called out of a pagan world. Called out of, called out of another way of living. Called into what? Called into light. Called into obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. The church is a called out people. Doesn't mean that we leave this world. No, said Jesus. We don't leave this world. We are still in the world, but we're not of the world. So in our hearts, we're aliens. We're from another planet, but we're incognito. We try to dress like everybody else, make a living just like everybody else, go to the bathroom just like everybody else. We look just like everybody else. But what we are, we're from another place. And that's what Jesus is reminding them. They are citizens of heaven. They've been called out of earth to be citizens of heaven. And they are put back into earth to be heavenly citizens on this earth. Now, if you do this, you're going to find the tension because you're living in Ephesus. You're living in a very wealthy city, a city with false worship, a city with other moral standards, a city with, where the religion, the false religion and the economy are connected so that the, way, the corrupt ways of doing business and doing other things are just part of the warp and woof of living in our culture. And so for you to be different makes you weird and you don't want to be weird. So you're constantly tempted to accommodate to the pagan culture, or in our case, the secular culture that's around you. So nothing could be more relevant for us today than to look at this letter written to people who are living in a city just like Memphis, Tennessee. And that's exactly what they're facing. So Ephesus is a city in need. Memphis is a city in need. Here we go. Secondly, we're going to see that Ephesus has a church who has a Lord. Look at verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus. And the angel could be either a heavenly angel that is caring for that church. That's one idea. Or, since the word angel means messenger, it could be the pastor. To the pastor of the church in Ephesus, write this down. And so John is sending, a, as bishop, he's sending a message to the pastors. And I personally think that's probably what's going on. And he says, these are the words of whom? of Him who holds the seven stars in His right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. You remember what the seven stars are? They're the seven pastors, the seven angels. So Christ has got that in His hand. And you remember that we said that the seven stars would have been seen in John's day as the seven planets that were known at that time. And rather than astrology, which most of the pagans would have believed in, that the, that the planets and the stars order your life and decree what's going to happen you, to you today, instead of reading the astrology in their newspaper, they're saying, look to Christ. He holds the seven planets in His hands. He holds the seven stars in His hands. And so here is the sovereign Lord who is speaking to the church in Ephesus, this weak, little, uh, insignif- politically insignificant church has a sovereign Lord who is the king of all the earth. He owns the cosmos. And He's the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, which means this sovereign Lord is the one who inhabits His church. He walks among His churches. So we have His presence. What an awesome privilege for us. So we're reminded that no matter what the culture makes you think from time to time, and no matter what you think uh, in this great city in which you live, the fact is that the church has the Lord Jesus Christ, the sovereign Lord of the universe, as her governor. Now, let's look at verses 2, 3, and verse 6 
and see the kind of strengths that are being mentioned by the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, he says, verse 2, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. He says, first of all, not just words, but also deeds. This is so encouraging, guys. There's not a thing that you're going to do today that is partially good, because I doubt you'll do anything that's perfectly good, but because your motives will be mixed and all the rest. So you, you probably won't do anything. To, well, you've probably never done anything in your life that was ever perfectly good. But you have some things in your life that you intend to be good. I mean, or the dominant motive may be good. There's not one little thing you're going to do that is not noticed by the one who holds the seven stars in his hands and walks among the seven golden lampstands. This sovereign Lord who is your master notices everything. For example, the guys are going to go out and, and drink a few beers and you're thinking, no, i got two kids at home. They're waiting for their dad to come home and you decide to go home. The one who holds the seven stars and walks among the seven golden lampstands knows exactly what you did. He saw it. He liked it. He's pleased with it. You can actually please him. Or some of you guys are going to go home tonight and your wives are going to go, ring, 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 ring. And you know exactly what I mean. And instead of going, rawr, 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 you're going to say, I'm sorry, dear, I didn't understand what you said. <laughs> you're going to be nice. And that's going to be hard for you. Because no guy likes to be snapped at by his wife. No guy likes that. And women, sometimes it takes them a couple of decades to figure that one out. But no guys, no guys like that. And if there are any women listening to this tape, you, you listen to me, gal. We don't like it. And, uh, and you know, some of your wives do listen to these tapes, so you can thank me for this later. I trust there will be a major difference in this church and in this city. Nice wives, that's what we want. We're going to start an organization for nice wives here in Second Presbyterian. But some of you are going to go home and your wives aren't going to be nice. But you are. And I, I know myself, that's hard. It takes a huge emotional and spiritual energy. But you're going to go home prepared to do that. And when you do it, God is just going to be pleased. He's going to have a big smile on His face. And furthermore, uh, not, not you, that you're even thinking about this necessarily, but you're going to be rewarded for it. You're going to forget about it next week, that you were nice. You'll, you'll probably remember it for a couple of days because it's so rare. <laughs> but you'll forget it next week. Your, probably, your wife probably won't forget it next week, but you will. But the Lord will never forget it. The least little thing you do, He will remember. And there's not anything this church has done or the individuals in that church have done that He hasn't noticed. And He notices that they are not just good at words. They're not just good at theology. They happen to be pretty good at theology. We'll see in a moment. But they're not just theologians. They actually do some deeds of service. And, uh, for example, those of you uh, who are engaged in, in trying to serve our city uh, and those at Second Presbyterian this, this weekend will have our missions conference. And I just look at all of our partners, some of them in this room with us, uh, who are partners in ministry. And to think that you're praying for them, you're participating with them, you're giving of your finances to support that work, just makes me want to weep every, every time we have this conference in this room tonight or tomorrow night. We'll have a, about 100 of our partners in here. And we'll just have a chance to celebrate them and thank them. And you know, uh, they're the first ones to, to tell you. You know, they can't do this work unless they have partners like you who are investing financially and in prayer and in your hands and feet in their ministries. Believe me. Believe me, the Lord of the church notices that and He likes it. <laughs> and He won't forget it. 
ever. You may, but He won't. And He is, he is pleased when your churches, when this church or, or any church in this city that gives itself to serve people in deed and not just in word. And they're not just uh, in, in good times, but also bad, because he says, your hard work and your perseverance. So they persevere. They don't give up. These Ephesians were kind of tough. They lived in a hostile environment. You live in a hostile environment. And when you face it day after day after day, you know you're being marginalized because of your peculiar morality. Or you guys who are dating some gal and you don't spend the night with her, and everybody says, what's weird with you? What's wrong with you? And you get all that stuff all the time. You just persevere. Believe me, Jesus notices it. And then uh, you'll notice that they're not just friendly, but they're also disciplined in a couple of ways. First of all, they test false teachers. Look what he says in verse 2. He says, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. Some of our churches are not so hot at this. But those of you that are at least trying and who consider it an important issue, Jesus Christ is pleased with that. We live in a generation where we basically hear this message. I, heard, I hear it almost every week of my life in Memphis, Tennessee. That yes, Jesus is a revelation of God, but so are all the other religions. They're also equally revelations of God. I hear this almost every week of my life in this city. And that is the dominant voice, the dominant religious voice in a secularized society that wants to flatten all the religions and make them all equally neutered and take away any distinctive claims that any religion has. That's the strategy of a secular city. And you're going to get that all the time. And if you want to go with the flow and be kind of a generally religious person, I would recommend that approach to you because that will be very popular with those who don't believe a blooming thing about God and those who claim that they do in most of the churches in our city. And that way we can all get along and there's no dissonance. And the society that we live in wants to remove all dissonance. It's called political correctness. We don't hurt each other's feelings, and therefore we would never make a religious claim that would put any dissonance between you and me. I don't want to hurt your feelings. And so we call it inclusion. But what it really is, there's a technical word for it, it's called syncretism. That is, my religion will be syncretized with those around me. It will be merged into one big religion that in the case of Christianity then loses its distinctive and ceases to be Christianity. And Jesus Christ ceases to be the Christ He reveals Himself to be, which is the awesome Lord of the universe who claims that He is the only way to know the Father. That's what He claims. You don't have to believe it, but that's what He claims. And there are many Christians who want to both be Christians by name and give up on what Jesus Christ claims. And that's happening across the church in this country. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm pleased when you realize there are distinctives that you can't merge Christianity into other religions and come up with one big conglomerate and that you can't remove the distinctives of who Jesus is and what he claim, and that He claims to be necessary for eternal salvation. You can't remove that. So when false teachers come in and you recognize it and you rise up as a congregation and confront it, I'm pleased with that. Now, that's not all He's going to be pleased with and it's not, that doesn't make Him perfect as we're going to see. But at least 
they're concerned about orthodoxy. What we would call the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed, they're concerned about it. And they insist that their teachers adhere to it. In some of the churches in this city, your teachers don't adhere to it. But you'll see that Jesus is pleased when the church says, you know what, truth is important. Why? Because truth reveals who God is. Truth leads to intimacy in relationship. You cannot have an intimate relationship with God without affirming and believing and being convicted by the truth. And thirdly, truth leads to goodness. Ethics don't just come out of the clear blue sky. It certainly doesn't come out of your heart. You think you just dreamt it up? You, what do you think would happen to us if every man left here and said, I'm going to live life according to my conscience? Golly, watch out. Some of the consciences in this room mean we're in trouble. What if everybody here lived according to their conscience? No, I'm, I'm kidding. There are good consciences in here, but not perfect. And your conscience is a good start. But Paul says, my, even I, I do have a clean conscience, he said, but that doesn't cleanse me. That doesn't satisfy me. It's God alone who's the judge. A conscience has to go get regulated somewhere. has to get calibrated. Your conscience will lose its true north unless you keep putting it back on true north. You'll lose true north. And true north is the Scriptures, the revealed will of God. So you're going to have to stay at work on it. You're going to have to discipline the false teachings in your own conscience that you entertain from time to time and what you read. You have to filter it. You have to critique it. You have to listen carefully. And you have to listen to your churches and your Sunday school classes the same way. It doesn't mean that you're rude. It just means that you value truth and you engage it. And you, and you seek to discipline your family, your Sunday school class, and your church. And then they hate false practices. If you look in verse 6, for example, he says, uh, you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, you notice he didn't say, I hate those Nicolaitans. I hate the practices of those Nicolaitans. I saw something in the paper the other day that was chiding the uh, uh, believing church because, you know, the church will sometimes say, we hate the sin but love the sinner. And the, the article in the commercial appeal will say, see, that, that never works. They, they always hate the sin and the sinner. Uh, okay, maybe we do. Uh, but it's bad if we do that because here's the standard. We don't hate the Nicolaitans. We hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. Now, who are the Nicolaitans? I don't know. <laughs> Neither is anybody else. But here's what scholars are guessing. Because we'll see some things in some other letters to churches that are very similar. It seems that the Nicolaitans were a group that were simply saying, you know, you can go to all those pagan practices, uh, pagan festivals. You can join in on their parties and their revelry and do what they do and be a Christian at the same time. Does it sound familiar, boys? Uh, we're always trying to figure out some way in which, you know, we can kind of keep our toe in that water and just do what we always did and not change the lifestyle very much, uh, certainly not in private, and still be a Christian. And that's what the Nicolaitans appeared to be saying. And Jesus was simply saying to his church, I'm pleased that you confront heterodoxy with orthodoxy. And I'm pleased that you confront revelry and uh, public sin with a Christian lifestyle. I'm pleased with that. So keep it up. He commends us. And don't think for a minute that he doesn't notice what's going on. And then it's because it's not just temporarily, but permanently. If you go back to verse 3, he says, You have persevered and have endured many hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Wow, what a church. These people are in a pagan city. They're being openly confronted 
and they don't give up. Now, this is especially impressive when you, uh, if you were to read the, the latter part of Acts 19 before Paul leaves town. Actually, it's probably one of the reasons he leaves town. What happens is the silversmith, uh, Demetrius in particular, gets really upset at Paul's preaching because, as I said, people are getting converted and it's ruining the economy. <laughs> and so they start yelling. They get a mob scene and start yelling, uh, Great is Artemis! Great is Artemis of Ephesus! And they, they get this big mob going, kind of a cheering mob for, for the god, god Artemis. And furthermore, they get two of Paul's key disciples and they, they ring them and they go into the theater. And if you go to Ephesus, the theater is there. It's, it's, it's beautifully restored. You can go right into that theater, see where all these people gathered. And poor old Alexander and some other doofus was down there, you know, Christian doofus down there going, oh, what's all these people upset about, you know? And they're getting ready to wring their necks. And it, it, there's, so there's this huge mob. And then one of the city officials comes out and says, look, guys, you've got to stop this. There's, no, there's been no legal proceeding. If you keep this up, we're going to be charged by the Roman authorities for a, for a mob scene, and you're all going to be in trouble. And so they finally disband. But then we're told that Paul soon after leaves Ephesus. <laughs> and they wouldn't let Paul go into the crowd because they knew they'd tear him to pieces. So when you see the kind of resentment, this deep, bitter resentment of the Christians, this is all the more oppressive. Because you can go to parts of the world today where people can't get a job because they're Christian. Their kids can't get into the university because their family is labeled as Christian. Uh, they can't get food for the table because they're Christians. This is happening all over the world. And some of them are being murdered because they're Christians. Believe me, when you face hostility, when you face opposition, when you face temptation and you resist it, Jesus Christ is so pleased with that. He notices it and it honors Him and lifts up the name of Christ. So all these things, this church has got it. In fact, we'd look at this church and say, man, this is some kind of a church. Man, I'd like to join a church like that. You know, so disciplined, so true, right on target, courageous, persevering. What a great church. But the church in Ephesus has a problem. And in verse 4, you get it. You have forsaken your first love. Wow! How could this be? How could you have a church that seemingly is so on fire and they have forsaken their first love? Seems impossible. All these great things that were said about them. How could they do this and miss the whole point of the gospel and the whole point of the love of their hearts? Guys, it happens all the time. There are guys who will get really deeply convicted about something and be absolutely convinced of the morality of something, absolutely convinced of the truth of something, and then go on it full steam ahead and never have the affections of their hearts engaged in the whole thing. I see it all the time. Some of us are particularly bent this way. You know, once we get, you know, it's like a bull who sees red. You know, once you see it, boom, you know, that's it. And to heck with everything else, we're going to go for the goal. Truth is truth. Right is right. Wrong is wrong. And that's the way it's going to be. It's called moralism. And there are a lot of churches that have a lot good to say about them, but they're, moral, they're moralistic. And, you, and I said a moment ago, wouldn't you like to join a church like that? Let me tell you, you really wouldn't. <laughs> Look, a church that you'd like to join is not only a church that believes in the truth and disciplines itself and believes in living a lifestyle that honors God, but a church with whom you'd like, you wouldn't mind going to vacation with some of the people in the church. 
And some churches I go to, I, I don't want to go to the beach with any of those people. You know, who wants to be friends with them? And so these people had forgotten their first love. And they were really going through the motions without an engaged heart. And gentlemen, it happens to people like the ones in this room. It's kind of like being married. You, know, you can go through the motions. kind of lost, lost your heart. You probably heard this story. A guy was playing golf and he was with his foursome. He gets to the 17th hole, which is right near the, the highway there. There's a funeral procession that goes by and, and the guy just takes off his hat. And puts, you know, he, instead of driving, he just stops, takes off his golf hat, puts it over his heart. And the other three are looking and said, Joe, I never knew you were so religious. And he said, well, gee, we were married for 40 years. I thought it was the least I could do. <laughs> There's an example of a guy who kind of lost his heart. Our guy who's asked one time, he said, you know, you've been married for, for 35 years. What, what's the key to being happy in marriage? He said, well, here's what the wife and I do. He said, one night a week, uh, we go out. We take a long walk. Uh, we get candlelight dinner. Have a really nice dinner. And then we take a long walk home. She does it on Thursday and I go out on Friday. Uh, I would say that maybe maybe they're happy, but they've lost their first love. Somehow there's... I mean, I knew a guy, I believe this, uh, in a pre- previous church. I want you to know it's previous church, not this church. Previous church. Previous church I served, a guy was an elder. And he was retirement age. And uh, he and his wife just seemed to be such nice older folks, you know. And I got to know them. And and then one time, uh, the older elder was telling me about his vacation. And then I realized he, he went without his wife. And that seemed a little strange to me. And so I asked him about it. And I, I heard them for 20 years, they've been going on vacation separately every year for 20 years. Now, some of you are saying, I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> But let me tell you, I think that's a little weird, don't you? I mean, they seem perfectly happy. Perfectly happy. And, you know, you can, you can just kind of go along in life. You've got your rules and kind of the way it's supposed to be lived. And life seems to be clicking for you. Just perfectly happy. But you're not in love. Look, the relationship with Christ is one of being in love. And if that's not happened in your heart and you're going through some motions... So even some motions that Jesus happens to like. I mean, it's pretty good motions. But He doesn't have your heart. You don't have His heart. Guys, you're really, really missing it. You're going on vacations at separate times. There's really no fellowship there. You just are kind of sharing the house. He walks among the golden lampstands. You walk among the golden lampstands. You just don't ever talk. And that's the way it goes for a lot of guys who kind of just, you know, it's all up here or it's all here in the hands. And that's what the Ephesians are. They're head and hands. Good head, good hands, no heart. Be sure that you get your heart in it because the way the Christian life goes, it's think, feel, do. Think, feel, do. Not just think, do. Think, feel, do. You get your heart in it. You get in love. You say, well, how do you just fall in love? Some of you just have to be told just about everything. You know that. How'd you fall in love with your wife? You you just or your girlfriend? You just you noticed how beautiful she was. You found her attractive. 
The problem of your not being in love with Jesus is not that he's not attractive. It's just that you hadn't taken a look for a while. Either that or your tastes are really screwed up. You know? Sometimes, you ever had a friend who uh, was, was dating a gal and you're wondering, what in the world does he see in her? <laughs> but he does. He studied her and he found some traits that you didn't even notice. And it's the same way with Jesus Christ. You have to, you have to contemplate him and look at him. When you do, like Revelation chapter 1, you find some things that are very attractive. So these people were head and hands, but they had lost their hearts. They had forsaken their first love. How does this happen to us? How does it happen? Let me tell you, the joke I told just a moment ago about the guy going out on Thursday night and his wife on Friday, that's how it happens. You never take a walk with him. You never talk with him. You don't pray to him. You don't listen to the Scriptures as his word to you, his beloved son. You listen to it as a book that was written 2,000 years ago. Oh, isn't this interesting? Like you would some other history book. You don't enter into the relationship. And you don't cultivate it. And therefore, the whole thing becomes academic and ethical rather than relational for you. You just don't enter in. And I know some of us have a hard time with this. And our wives keep telling us, you know, you never talk. You don't relate. Some of, you, some of us don't very well. And so when it comes to your Christian faith, you'll find the same thing, that you're having to cultivate it. You're having to learn how to talk how to be married to Jesus Christ. But that's the deal. This church, and Jesus, believe me, noticed it. Isn't it interesting? This is the first one of them all. The first church he addresses and their first problem, they've forsaken their love for him and therefore for each other. You cannot really have affection for your brothers unless you have affection for Jesus Christ, which means you know his affection for you. You return it in praise and thanksgiving and then you give that same love to your brothers. So this was probably an intellectual, moralistic church that seemed to have the signs of health, but you get in it, it's really not a very warm place to be because these people have not had their hearts melted by Christ, and neither do they really know how to love each other. They've forsaken the main thing of the church. When you look at what Jesus says about the church, when He's saying that, talking about the signs of health in a church, the number one thing he says is, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And these people had abandoned that. The church in Ephesus, however, has the answer. Praise the Lord. Boy, I'm glad there's an answer here. All right? The answer is, first of all, remember. He says, remember the height from which you've fallen. So, if, you're, if you find your spiritual life a little flat, the affections of your heart a little flat, here's something you can do. First thing is remember. Remember what? Remember the heights from which you've fallen. That is, was there ever a time... Let's talk about marriage for a minute. Was there ever a time when you and she really were getting it on? Was there ever a time when you all just really enjoyed being in each other's arms, being together at dinner, doing things together, having good conversations, mutually discovering each other? Did that, was that time ever there? Well, of course it was. It had to have been, or you never would have gotten married. So remember, what was it about her? that made you want to marry her? Why did you marry that woman? And secondly, when were those times when you all were really having fun? Remember that. Just get that in your head. Now, what brought that about? Think about the elements about her that caused you to fall in love with her. Think about what was going on when things were really going well with you. What did you do toward her? What were the initiatives you took? What were the things you said to her? Just remember the heights of that relationship. If you are a believer 
today and you find your spiritual life a little flat, remember, when were you really excited about Jesus Christ? When was it? What were you doing and what was He doing in your life at the time when you were really excited about Him? These are very helpful questions to ask yourself because it it will lead you to some conclusions. When was I really doing well spiritually and what can I learn from that season? It's very important to do. That's the reason, for example, gentlemen, it's not a bad idea to keep a journal in two times especially. Times when your heart is being revived and times when you are in the pits. Those two times especially you need to be recording in a journal. Both of those testimonies will be important to you about five years later when you're in the pits again and you need to remember how God met you in the pits and when you remember how He revived your heart. And you'll say, oh yeah, I know. He's God. He didn't forget me. He won't forget me now. And you'll get a sense of history again. You know, sometimes guys get so absorbed in the here and the now, and I'm not talking about today. I'm talking about this very minute. And this very minute defines my existence. That one critical word that that board member said to me defines my existence. Guys, back off. Step back. Remember the heights. Remember the heights. Okay, you've fallen from the heights, but remember the heights. And get back to the heights. They have something to teach you about how to be on the heights. And then secondly, he says, repent. Nice word. We love that word, don't we? Repent. Well, what does repent mean? Repent just simply means to turn. Uh, The word uh, is probably used almost 60 times in the New Testament. Metanoia. Meta means change. Noia comes from the word that means mind. Change your mind. So, uh, and in Christian usage, the word metanoia really means to change your whole life. It means to change your mind, your heart, and your will. Remember? Think, feel, do. So Christian repentance is not just intellectual. It's holistic. It's the whole being turning. So I'm following the pagans. I'm worshiping at the temple of Diana. And then I turn. Now I'm worshiping God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm worshiping the Lord Christ. I was following in the temple of Diana. I was following their sexual practices, engaging with their temple prostitutes to celebrate the fertility of the goddess of Diana. And so now and I've been enjoying their wine and their, uh, their libations and all of their nice temple food and all of their great parties that they have on the weekends. It's a delightful kind of lifestyle, but then I say, no, that is corrupt. And I turn and say, you know what? My lifestyle now is one of service. I'm going to serve Him. I'm going to serve my fellow creatures. And I'm going to serve His church. I'm going to serve my wife and family. It's a total turn around. That's repentance. Now, I want us to notice several things about repentance before we go home today, go to work today. First, it is a gift. It's interesting. You you can look with me in Acts 5, or you can just listen. In Acts chapter 5, the apostles are talking about uh, their testimony. And Peter and the other apostles reply, verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. They're talking to the Sanhedrin. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging Him on a tree. Verse 31, 531. God exalted Him to His own right hand as Prince and Savior that He might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. Repentance is given to us. Now, uh, listen carefully on this. 
God doesn't repent from sin. We repent from sin. God has no sin from which to repent. We do the repentance. We repent. However, having said that, repentance is a gift to us. So we do it because He gives it to us to do. It's a gift of His Holy Spirit. Faith is the same way. And faith and repentance are two sides of one coin. We know that in order to to enter the kingdom of God, we must repent and believe. You ask me, which comes first? Impossible question to answer. They come at the same time. They are are syncretized. They go together. So at the moment that I believe in Jesus Christ, I can't believe unless I turn to Him. And as I turn to Him, I'm turning my back on paganism. It happens at the same time. If I'm going to turn from paganism, the only way I could do it is by the power of God. I turn to Him. It's all happening at the same time. Because He is beautiful to me, because He is true to me, because He is good to me, He's true, good, and beautiful, I behold Him and desire Him more than this. And so to get Him, I turn my back on this. That's repentance. So it is a gift from God. So you say, I repented. Yes, you did repent. But you did it because God gave it to you, just like He gave faith to you. You're the one who believes. God doesn't have to believe. He already believes. But He gives you the gift of believing. So you're actually doing it because He gives you the power to do it. Secondly, it is believing repentance. Now this can happen in an intellectually oriented, moralistic church. People can repent mentally and volitionally out of the, their, their own sense of self-righteousness. But gospel repentance is a believing repentance. It's a believing, it's a repentance because I believe in Him and submit my heart to Him. It's called evangelical repentance. And it is God-centered. Turn with me, please, if, if, you, if you can here for just this last five minutes. Let's look at 2 Corinthians. This is a very important text in describing the nature of real repentance. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, you will see that Paul says, for 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, he says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Now, there is a... Stay there for a minute because we'll keep referring to that verse. There is a godly sorrow and a worldly sorrow. There's a sorrow that you got caught. And then there's a sorrow that you displeased the One who made you and redeemed you. The first is sorry because of yourself. The second is sorry because of Him. Because you haven't lost your first love. And it's actually your love that is most grieved of all. So repentance that it leads to life is the repentance that is God-centered. It's focused on Him. It's having grieved Him. And therefore, it leads to life in you. Let me give you the perfect contrast here. At the passion of the Lord Jesus Christ, you remember His disciples fled. And you remember two seminal events. One was Peter denied Him three times to his, in one instance almost to His face. He was a coward. Denied the Lord Jesus Christ. He ever knew Him. Judas, secondly, was one who betrayed Him with 30 pieces of silver. Now notice, eventually, both of those men were very sorry. 
You can read about Judas in Matthew 27. He was very sorry for what he did. And then he went out and hung himself. It's a sorrow that leads to death. Judas was sorry that he had blown it. That he had ruined his reputation. That he had been such a creep. That's worldly sorrow. Peter was sorry that he had wounded his best friend. That he had dishonored the Lord. And Jesus, remember, comes back to Peter and asks him three times, Peter, what? Do you love me? And Peter was restored when Jesus called out of him the real love he had for Jesus instead of the love for himself. And that's what the difference Paul is making here. Repentance is not just being sorry. You can be very sorry. And it leads only to self-condemnation and it will lead to the same dang sin again. Because you'll only find relief for your sorrow when you go out and tie another one on. But when your sorrow comes out of this loving relationship, you'll see that it leads to life. And here it, here's what it looks like. First, there's conviction, then confession, restitution where possible, and then watchfulness. And in this text of Second Corinthians, you get that watchfulness, verse 11. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. You see what repentance does? It leads to a changed life. It's not just being sorry. It's leading to a changed life, which leads to life, joy, happiness, fulfillment. Repentance is not miserable. Repentance is great. It's a relief. It's life itself. So that's repentance. Then uh, we see thirdly, he says, return. Do the things you did at first. So you remember the heights. You're turning away from your thoughts, your affections, and your actions you turn back to Christ and go back to where you were at the heights. The same way with marriage. Do the things you did at first. Do the things you did to charm her and to win her and to woo her and to love her and to give yourself for her. Return to those vows you took some years ago. Remember what they were. That I promise to be your loving and faithful husband in plenty and in want and joy and in sorrow and sickness and in health as long as we both shall live. Do the same with Christ. Remember what you promised. I promise that I need you. I'm a sinner. I promise that I trust you. I promise I'll seek by your grace to live a holy life. I promise that I'll participate in the work and worship of the church to the best of my ability. I promise that I'll submit myself to the government and discipline of the church and promise to promote its peace and purity and unity. All these promises. Remember, go back to the things you did at first. And then the church in Ephesus is clearly warned. Your lampstand will be removed. And ladies and gentlemen, ladies, well, I don't know. Some of you could be faking it. I don't know. Gentlemen, I mentioned that Ephesus is a wonderful place to see one of the greatest ruins in the world. Ruins. Now, it wasn't long before this church was in ruins because they didn't listen to the warning. And then lastly, the church is exhorted and promised eternal life. Look at this. You will eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. And I don't care how young you are, it's coming very soon. This life is going to be over. And throughout my life, I've lost some friends. It started when I was a teenager. Lost my best friend in a car accident. Lost my next best friend in a car accident at 19. And ever since then, I've been losing friends my age. It can happen to any of us any moment. And it's going to be over. And here's what's going to matter to you. 
whether you're in paradise and whether you have life or not. And repentance leads not only to joy in this life, it leads to eternal life. This is you know, all the marbles. This is everything. So look, if you're going to live a life that means something here, it needs to have the trajectory toward ultimate meaning in heaven. And that's what Christ is saying to His church. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your message to the church. We thank You that we assemble here as men from all over the city, some of us in church, some of us not, but who hear this Word of Jesus Christ to His people. And we pray that these words from the Scripture would quicken our hearts and cause us to fall in love with You again and give our lives to You and speak of You and live for You from the heart in every way so that we may have life now and forevermore. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.